Fresh Art International presents conversations about creativity in the 21st century. Good morning, everyone. This is Fresh Art International on Jolt Radio in Miami, Florida. I'm Kathy Bird, and today we're talking about 21st century radio. Jolt is one of the thousands of radio stations around the world that broadcasts exclusively online, 24-7 live streaming. It's funny, an amazing number of people still don't know how this works, and I get asked all the time for Jolt's call letters. But if you're listening right now, you know that Internet stations don't have call letters. They have URLs and apps. You can't dial up my show on your radio. Exactly. But you can listen live on your smartphone or in your smart car by downloading the Jolt Radio app. The motivation for today's conversation about contemporary radio, it's Radio Fest, a full day of free activities on Saturday, March 11 at the Wolfsonian, the design museum that sits at the corner of 10th Street and Washington Avenue on Miami Beach. Heather Cook, head of education at the museum, is here to talk about the event. Other guests in the studio are playwrights Kenny Finkel, who's calling in from New York, Vanessa Garcia and William Hector, also playwrights. And with us as a very special guest is Christine DeMatte, news anchor and reporter at WLRN, Miami's public radio station. I've invited them to join us because the Radio Fest finale will be the premiere of four radio plays based on WLRN news stories. To set the stage for our show... Let's listen to the Fresh Art International podcast episode I recorded with Roman Mars. You'll hear how 99% Invisible, his phenomenal podcast about architecture and design, began as a five-minute radio show in San Francisco. When we met at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas a few years ago, I recorded this conversation. How did you get started in radio? In, in radio, it was a, a while ago at this point. I, I had um, I'd done a number of things in my life, uh, none of them pointing towards radio. I was just kind of a huge radio fan, and I had heard enough people um, on the radio, and I thought if I could do a new thing every day, if I could study a new thing, that would be the perfect life. And I knew that there was somebody. I, I loved Ray Suarez on Talk of the Nation, and uh, at the time, he was the host of Talk of the Nation. And I knew that there was somebody who read the books and told him what to ask, although I'm sure he did a lot of it himself, but I knew that there was some role like that. I didn't know what that role was. I didn't know what it was called, a producer. But I, um, I went to try to figure that out. And so I tried internships and volunteering at stations until I finally got a job doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And your background? Um, I... I went to graduate school to study plant population genetics, and so I did that. I've built prosthetic limbs. I've, uh, you know, worked in a warehouse. I've done any number of things that helped start a tech company. Um, but they all—it was me trying to figure out how to be excited by something new every day, and so radio ended up being that thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What propelled you to the podcast platform? That you know, kind of. I started with uh, 99% Invisible as a radio show. It was a module on KALW. Um, uh, 
It ran for five minutes. I had it on a website and told my friends, oh, it, it's out here, well, you know, check it out. And they immediately said, well, where's the podcast of it? And I didn't have a great desire to do a podcast. I just wasn't, I, at the time, the, the series was funded for 13 episodes for me to pilot it out. So I wasn't sure it was going to be ongoing even. And then I, uh, so when I started the podcast, um, it, okay. then it began to take, take it on its own life as a podcast. Mm-hmm. And so that's how it, all, how it all functioned. And why do you think podcasts are significant? I mean, it's a great way to learn the craft, to kind of have no real barrier to entry. Um, you can start it, you can do it cheaply. Um, and the way to make great, I still call it all radio. Like in, in my head, I call it radio. The way to make great radio is to make radio, make more radio. And that you have this amount of bad habits, bad you know, taste, bad qualities in your work. And um, you can't think it out or wait it out. You have to work it out. You have to keep making things. And so podcasting gives you that platform to do it. It's like easier to get going. Uh, the hard part is that since it's all the deadlines are self-imposed, um, you have to make them, you have to make them feel strict. I mean, back when I was doing only radio, I think the first time I ever really finished a piece was when I had to put it on the air. And so you have to figure out when to stop. But I think it's a great place to work. And I think the connections I've found, like public radio has this great relationship with its audience. It's considered much more like intimate and close than typical other radio or other forms of media. And so public radio takes a great pride in that. I think podcasting is even more intimate, is even more connected to the audience. And and so if you're used to dealing in that space where the relationship feels very personal, then there's a great opportunity in podcasts to, to, to work and work on that stuff with, and engage with the community. And, and hopefully they, they will support you financially and in all other ways to make you have a successful show. I asked Roman about how he designs the 99% Invisible series. What's great about an ongoing series is like you, I kind of course correct. So like if the series is getting too, you know, too many buildings in a row, I'll do like a little toothbrush or I'll do, and it allows you to have, you never want, I don't like want to plan it out too far in advance because I want to be able to kind of steer the ship as we go. Make discoveries. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And what so, about the length minutes per podcast? It's totally variable. It's it really seems. variable. I, I just, I, as someone who had to constantly either um, cut to fit or fill to make time on a radio show to fit an hour, to fit that format, I was just like, I'm liberated from that. So I never spend time cutting things down anymore. I, I make it so it's tight enough to be good and doesn't overstay its welcome. But, um, but it's about it being a series of irregularly length things, and I think that format is fantastic. I love it. I share that format. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what podcast do you listen to yourself? I know you said in the talk yeah. that it's really important people look to see what you're listening to. So I'm curious. Yeah. Um, I, I listen to a lot of public radio things. Um, so like on the media or Radio Lab and This American Life. Um, I have sort of native podcasts, podcasts. Uh, How to Do Everything is is friends of mine who work on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Um, the Truth by Jonathan Mitchell is sort of like updated radio drama, which is really brilliant. Uh, this one called Love and Radio by Nick Vanderkolk is also just really intense stories, kind of in the, just in this sort of, I think he's 
pretty well inspired by Joe Frank. This really intense, deep stories are impeccably sound designed. Uh, uh, I like the movie review podcast from BBC Five Live. You know, I, I just I run the gamut, and I have to listen to a lot of stuff from my job, but. Um, I still listen to hours and hours more of that a day than I am required to. It's just, it's my favorite medium, so. Tell me about why you chose this subject you chose. Why did you choose architecture and design? I chose it, it was kind of by chance actually. Uh, the uh, radio station I do a lot of work with, KLW in San Francisco, had a mutual friend in, uh, in the AIA, the American Institute of Architects, San Francisco. And they had sort of approached me, because a lot of my job as a consultant is I work on new radio shows and I get them launched. And I sound design and launch new radio shows. So they'd asked me, what, what, what do you think of what an architecture minute type little broadcast would be like? And I thought about it a lot and we worked on it some. And uh, rather than hire someone to do it, I, was, I had a great interest in design and architecture, and I broadened the whole idea to all of design rather than just architecture. I, uh, I decided I wanted to do it instead of um, hiring someone else and sort of handing it off uh, to work on being a host again, to work on writing. I do a lot of sound design, so writing was fun. And so I just thought it was, and I, I surveyed the landscape, and I just saw there was nothing really doing what I was doing, what I wanted to do. And so I just f- tried to fill the niche. I wondered when Roman knew he was onto something. With the show, I, I mean, I kind of felt it right away. I felt it before when the name 99% Visible came up is when I felt like I know how to, I know how to do that show. It wasn't like I didn't know how to do the architecture show necessarily. I knew how to do a show about the, the things, all the thought that goes into things that people don't think about. I knew how to do that show. And then I surveyed things, and I just kind of felt like I, I just kind of knew it would be good. I don't know, and that, that doesn't happen to me very often. And so, I, I didn't take other jobs at the time to build up the show, um, thinking that as in like in sort of the entrepreneurial sort of journalism world, I wanted to see, I wanted to make a go of it, trying to make money at it. I just, for some reason, it all aligned because I'd worked on every type of public radio show in existence, this seemed like something that other people weren't doing exactly the way I wanted to do it. So to me, it it was kind of immediate, actually. It was weird. It was unusual for me to have that feeling. And how did his funding come together? A design company right away sponsored it, called Lunar, who did the first set. And then they, they signed on for a second. And it didn't cover all of the material. It didn't cover all the costs. But I did it at nights and weekends, and I just tried to make it work. Uh, and I found little underwriting here and there. And then I would just, you know, like as the audience was building, I went to people on Twitter and I said, do you have a company? Can you help? Whatever. And, the, and then Facebook got in touch, and they sponsored the show. So Facebook and MailChimp started doing it. And then I did the, but it wasn't going to be enough to make it work. And then I did the Kickstarter. And uh, from there, because the Kickstarter was such a success, um, more advertising flowed from that. Has 99% Invisible made a difference in how Rowan Mars sees the world? It's changed me a ton. I'm much more, well, A, I'm much more critical because of the way designers see the world. 
I, I now notice all the failures a lot more. But more than that, I notice the stories and the successes and the way that really real geniuses have solved problems. So like, I don't consider myself an extremely optimistic person, like naturally, I'm not naturally wired that way, but covering the show the way that I have, I see sort of genius in things way more often. And so, so recognizing that there's little stories in every little thing um, has made it like much more interesting life. I, uh, and I get that response from other people, so I know it's, it's, it's working, like it's made them recognize the world and it's sort of how clever and how fun it is to recognize these stories. And even just like, even when intention and, uh, and the application of a design completely breaks down, it's just, it's a fun story to tell. So yeah, it's totally, it's totally changed my way I view the world. Here's Roman introducing 99% Invisible, episode 43, the accidental music of imperfect escalators. Ever since the Industrial Revolution, when it became possible for products to be designed just once and then mass-produced, it has been the slight failures and imperfections and the individual wear and tear introduced by human use that transforms a quality mass-produced product into a thing we actually love. Your worn-in blue jeans, your grandmother's iron skillet, the initial design determined its quality, but it's their post-manufacturing imperfections that make them comfortable, that make them lovable, that make them yours. If you think a slightly broken escalator can't be lovable, well, maybe you haven't been paying attention. That was my Fresh Art International podcast episode with Roman Mars, the man behind the podcast 99% Invisible. He's as passionate as I am about radio and podcasting. Good morning. You're listening to the Fresh Art International show on Jolt Radio in Miami. I'm Kathy Bird. And today, we're talking about 21st century radio. My first guest is Heather Cook. Good morning, Heather. Good morning, Kathy. Thank you so much for having us. It's really cool to be here in the studio. Heather is the head of education and visitor experience at the Wolfsonian. And she studied art history and worked as a curatorial fellow before she joined the Wolf. And her passion is interactive programming, as evidenced by this idea of a radio fest at the museum. Yeah, that's right. Um, For those of you who don't know the Wolfsonian, as Kathy mentioned, we're an art and design museum, but we're specifically focused on the modern era, so about 1850s to 1950s. And part of our mission is to kind of explore and tell the story of the changes that happened during that era and what it means to be modern. And radio is a huge part of what transformed um, that 100-year span of time. So in thinking about radio, I realized it was an amazing opportunity to collaborate, and that's sort of where Radio Fest began. And who are your partners in crime on this? Because (laughs) it's a really big deal. I've seen the programs you have set up. Yeah, well, it all started with just a kernel of an idea. You know, let's do something about radio that explores the history of radio and what's going on today. And I started by talking to Wilson Sayer at WLRN, who I just knew from being around in the community, and I kind of came to her and said, hey, I have this idea, what can we do? And it just exploded from there. Every person I talked to had another person I should talk to, and another person I should talk to. So um, we're really just scratching the surface this year. I hope to grow it in the future. But as far as this year is concerned, 
We're working with WLRN on um, both a live recording booth that's going to be at the Wolfsonian during the festival, as well as the radio plays, which you're going to hear more about um, in a bit. We're also working with The New Tropic, who has put together an awesome panel discussion of internet radio stations, including Jolt. Um, we're also working with Moonlighter Makerspace. They're going to be there helping people make little iPhone speakers that are based on retro radios. We're working with the collector, Harvey Mattel, who has lent some really awesome retro radios for us to display. Um, there's just a lot happening throughout the day, and I think it'll be a fun experience for people to come in, make a little something, listen to something, learn something, and uh, see some cool stuff. Yes, and who do you hope is coming your way for this? Who, who are you reaching <laughs> out to? Who do you think wants to hear about radio? I really hope that we have something that appeals to everyone. I mean, I definitely consider this to be a family-friendly program. So bring your kids. We'll have some uh, sound effect equipment they can play with and they can make with Moonlighter. Um, anyone who's interested in radio or loves to listen, I think, will enjoy this program. And that's a growing number of us, I would say, these days are listening to Internet radio and podcasts and public radio. Um, but especially if you consider yourself an audiophile in any manner, you definitely have to come out because you're going to be meeting a lot of really cool people and seeing some behind-the-scenes things that we're used to just hearing, but we're going to give um, some visual excitement to this day. I think it'd be great to share with them what's going to happen in the Bridge Tender House, which is a structure right outside the door of the Wolfsonian that is rarely activated with people inside it. So tell us what Wilson Sarah is going to be doing there. Yeah, it's kind of a funny little space. It was originally, you know, as it's named, a bridge tender house on a, a Miami bridge built in the 1930s. It's completely um, metal, this really cool art deco structure. And it's sort of, it's part of our collection and it's just plopped out there on the sidewalk, but it's the perfect little recording booth. So Wilson Sayer is turning that structure into a recording booth for the day. And you're gonna have an opportunity if you come to Radio Fest to actually be interviewed by Wilson in this space. She's gonna be doing little 15 minute interviews asking people to tell her about a noise or a sound that has impacted their life. So that's going to be going on until 2 p.m. She'll be doing these different recordings. And then from 2 to 5, she's going to close the door, put her headphones on, and start working on her laptop, editing these, in, these uh, interviews into short radio stories. And we're going to have TV monitors inside the Bridge Tender House facing out, hooked up to her laptop, so you'll be able to see and hear exactly what she's doing. So... This is a really cool opportunity to see what is behind the scenes and what goes into creating these types of stories that we all love to listen to. I think that's awesome. And today we're going to be hearing from, as you said, these radio play people that are producing the, the plays that will be premiered. Yes. So one of the component, there's a lot of components of this day. Um, that I don't have time to tell you all of them, but one of the absolute most exciting things that's happening are these radio plays that are being premiered at 7 o'clock on Saturday. And um, yeah, it'll be the first time that they are premiering. And 
I have personally never experienced being present during a live radio play. So things like sound effects and audio audience participation, um, I'm really, really excited to hear more about how that's going to work and then see it actually happen. Well, this is the perfect kind of program for me because I love <laughs> both radio and podcasts and really see the future in what we can do with sound waves through the digital uh, universe. Is there anything else? Oh, where people can find out more information about... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you can visit wolfsonian.org to find out more about Radio Fest and all of the other components of the day that I haven't mentioned. Um, we're also on the New Tropics website. Since they're a partner, you can RSVP there and get tickets to the radio plays. And is it free, this event? Yes. So the radio plays in the evening are ticketed because there's limited seating in our auditorium, and we're hoping to really fill it up. Um, but the rest of the day is completely free. So this is also a great opportunity to just see the Wolfsonian for free and have it activated in all these new and interesting ways. Well, I'm really happy that we are able to feature radio on the radio <laughs> today. When I started researching the program you have planned, Heather, uh, I came upon the Radio Play Project, and that's what led me to Kenny Finkel, our next guest. And... My, Kenny's from Miami. He was born here, and he's now based in New York. He's a theater maker, writer, composer, semi-visual artist, and he'll maybe explain to that to me someday, <laughs> performer and also a trickster, he describes himself. He is in non-traditional theater work and creates pieces that involve music and visual arts. He's a master playwright who's been working with Vanessa Garcia and William Hector on their radio plays, and he's calling in right now. Hello. Hi, Kenny. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm great. I'm really happy to have a chance to talk to you again. Uh, Kenny and I spent some time on the phone just uh, exploring our mutual love for experimentation and our media. And I am really happy that you're able to take the time to call in today. My pleasure. Thrilled to be here. Well, let's talk about 21st century creativity in the theater and what that means to you as a playwright. There's no one way you can practice whatever your creative medium. My experimentation or um, working outside of institutional or expected norms um, was sort of born out of a um, a frustration with uh, trying to get my work done in spaces where I felt like somebody else was uh, making decisions about what my work should be or shouldn't be. And I started to think, well, I'm an artist. I express myself. I don't have to go through normal means. What are other ways that I can um, have a more direct relationship with audience without having to wait for somebody to approve of my work or to um, give it a platform. What platforms could I give myself? And I thought, as I was doing that, I suddenly discovered that um, there are lots of people doing that because we're living in a in a time where there are so many different ways that um, art, you can connect with artists can connect with their audiences that aren't um, typical through. Um, 
radio and podcasts and uh, visuals and um, social media, and that there's all sorts of opportunities to um, create in those forms, and also that those forms sort of challenge the artist to um, think about what kind of content would fit into those forms and why, and how can those two things marry into making something that creates a new kind of art. And I think that makes sense because you're reaching new kinds of audiences when you work on different platforms. Yes, totally. And what are some of the platforms you've produced theater in? I've been exploring, I, I, I have this ingredients or a recipe for work if, over the last few years, which is the form, content, audience, and scale sort of need to be um, all at the same level. So that I'm thinking about what, like, for example, I have this uh, piece called You Are Star, which is a graphic novel musical for audiences of five that happens in an apartment. The uh, It's an intimate experience and exchange between the audience and artist. I'm there, I'm present, the audience sits down, and the play only occurs with, um, through their participation. They have to turn the pages of the graphic novel in time with the soundscape that's made up of songs and scenes um, that I've created and recorded. And then there's also sort of this question of a, a piece that's super intimate about what that story is that needs to be told in such an intimate way and why does it affect an audience because of its size. And um, and then I've been working as well in radio theater, which is what uh, we're talking about today, or I've been creating a piece that I'm calling more of an audio movie. It's for audiences to listen to with their eyes closed, um, lying down in a theater space. So there's something of community building there, but also something of having a private time and a more meditative space. And um, yes, I guess those are two of the projects I'm working on. Well, I know you're a master playwright for the Miami-Dade South Florida Theater League's Playwright Development Program. That's a big title. <laughs> yes, yes. And you've been mentoring four Miami writers. That's correct. Uh, Vanessa Garcia, William Hector, Hannah Benitez, and Stephanie Hansen. Well, what, what motivated you to suggest they create radio plays as part of their project with you? Well, I think um, part of the job of being a mentor is sort of trying to find or trying to connect the things that um, I'm passionate about with uh, the writers that I'm working with so that I have a real investment in it and I'm also learning and growing with them. Um, and because I've been exploring um, the possibilities of radio or that form, um, I thought it would be a fun way for the writers and I to connect and build something. I also felt like... Um, uh, I wanted, because these writers are based in Miami, um, and Miami is a really special place to me. It's my hometown, and I think Miami is an amazing cultural uh, city that I wanted to find ways through the Playwright Development Program and the South Florida Theater League to connect these writers directly to the community. And so we thought it would be great to write radio plays that could be somewhat about what it means to live in Miami and what is Miami and how do we articulate that point of view to a larger audience. Um, and I was also then interested in how can the idea of the writers focusing on sound, what stories need to be told through sound, and how do we tell a story through sound, that that could only enhance their playwriting in a more general way. 
Well, we have another Miami native up next as a guest, uh, and I thought William Hector uh, is one of the writers in the studio today that I'd introduce William so he can jump into our conversation. Hi, William. Hi, Kathy. How are you? I'm great. William is a Miami. How are you, Ken? It's good to hear from you. (laughs) Um, William is a Miami-born playwright and novelist, and he studied politics, philosophy, economics, and playwriting. And he's one of the four playwrights that Kenny's working with. Perhaps the two of you can talk about the way you workshop the radio play. Yeah, definitely. So one of the, I think, the principles of all of our workshopping is we sort of sit at a group and we assign roles and we just sort of read it out loud, enjoy each other's writing, and then talk about it, sometimes sort of going in with questions first. Sometimes the writer doesn't speak. It's sort of whatever we feel is to the benefit of the play and whatever the writer wants. So, for example, it might be the writer just wants to hear what people thought and not give them any preconceived ideas don't speak until the very end. Or it may be they'd bring up something like, I have a specific question about this part, and so let's talk about this. And I understand you had to practice creating your own sound effects. Yes, yes. And sort of that... And that was all improv, so it was also improving a lot of dialogue and so forth and envisioning what the sounds would be in the circumstance. In my case with Stephanie, it was out in the Everglades disposing of a body, so there were plenty of interesting noises to make. <laughs> that sounds fun. <laughs> well, what's... I, Yeah, you made me... Uh, yeah, I, we, we, they had to, they had to um, make a scene with an activity that required that, you know, and to decide what where they were and what sounds they needed to do during the activity and then have like a goal that they needed to accomplish so that it created a whole bunch of different ways that sound could be explored. That's a great, that's a great exercise. I think that would be pretty fun. I am hooked on sound effects. I love creating them and I love introducing them into my podcast and radio show to give people a a sense of where they are when we're talking about a certain subject. Definitely. And I think that's something that you can really only do in the radio format. I think in terms of comedy or narrative, removing one of the senses, like what Ken is talking about, about his project where you would just lie down and experience the soundscape. You can actually add things that you could not have added if you had all your senses at your disposal. So, Heather, you could set it up so people are lying in the theater so more people could get in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. You can really pack them in. <laughs> yeah, just bring your yoga mat, and then you're... you're... <laughs> just don't tell fun. the fire marshal. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, William, you've created a couple of other, a few other plays, and mm-hmm. they've been presented in physical space. Yes. What was the biggest challenge for you of translating your ideas into a radio format so you're not removing just one sense Mm -hmm. you're removing several ways that people relate to drama and ideas so something i really pay attention to in both my own writing and just reading in general is character voices you know i really love distinct character voices and interactions and i felt that that was especially important here because i have a courtroom drama comedy with five people in it. And so it's important that every you can distinguish who's talking at what point because it's only 15 minutes. You don't have an hour to build up, ah, yes, this is that character's voice. So that meant, you know, having real modes of, real diverse modes of speech, um, differing of gender so that you have different tones of voices so that it's easier for your ear to place who is who. And honestly, that the fact that it's a 15-minute radio play, it meant sort of, 
fitting everything I wanted to fit in that threshold because there's just so many cool opportunities. It was so exciting. I'd love to revisit this again and go back and do another radio play. It was fantastic. I'm really glad Ken and WRN brought this project to us because it was a fantastic experience and still is going to be because it's still yet to be performed. Yes, yes, the debut on Saturday <laughs> night. Well, William, your play is about two of Miami's historic graffiti artists. Yes. And I thought it'd be cool to introduce the real-life media coverage of their notorious tagging because your play is based on a news story mm -hmm. from WLRN. Yes, Julia Duba's news story, and she did a great yes. job of integrating all of that material, and that's def I would definitely think it'd be great to air it because that's what inspired me so much. I think we'll start with just the general news coverage of the graffiti problem in Miami. In the 90s, graffiti was a huge problem in South Florida. You know, graffiti is really making some people see red. And in 1999, two graffiti artists known as Crook and Chrome became the symbol of that problem, even though the media didn't realize they were actually two people. Where is it coming from? Who is responsible for Crook Chrome? Who is this street artist defacing everything in his or her path? Not only did the news media want to find Crook and Chrome, but so did the state attorney's office. Police eventually found Crook and Chrome's apartment and arrested Crook. You like the artwork you do? You like it. This is one of the compressors and this is the paint that was used on 24th Street and I-95. They did a big mural and they put Chrome and Crook there. Hey, where's Chrome? Up your ass. While the police continued their search for Chrome, Crook was in court with a prosecutor who wanted to make an example of him. Judge, the state attorney's office would request a $1 million bond in this case. I know it's very unusual. This is a very unusual case. Tell me, I'm not setting a million dollar bond on a, on a third degree felony. Your bond, sir, will be 50000 which is the biggest bond they've ever given on this type of charge. But the case fell apart because the cops searched the apartment without a warrant. When they ran to the defendant's apartment to prevent his escape, they broke into his home and violated his Fourth Amendment rights against unreasonable searches and seizures. Even without a conviction, the state attorney's office had made their point. Graffiti artists kept their distance from I-95 after Crook's arrest. Sixteen years later, trendy Miami businesses are paying artists like Crook and Chrome to paint graffiti murals on their walls. Now let's listen to one example of 21st century radio. It's the first few minutes of podcast that was produced at WLRN, a one-hour-long documentary titled End of the Road. And there are stories about the last 87 miles of Interstate 95, and the story introduces Crook and Chrome as graffiti kings. And what I'd like about to show it now is that it takes a creative leap from a news story to personalize the lives of these two graffiti artists and as William said, WLRN's Julia Duba introduced these two taggers. How big this wall is. It's a big wall. You're listening to a special hour from WLRN's End of the Road series. We're looking at real and perceived dangers on I-95. And uh, I'm with WLRN's Julia Duba. Hey. We're standing next to a very heavily graffitied wall. We're in Wynwood. This is where the old RC Cola building used to be. And we came here to show you in part that this wall is very close to I-95. I think it's too close to I-95. This is way too loud. Let's, uh, let's do this back in the studio. <laughs> okay. You hear that? Yeah. The sound of not being next to I-95. 
At any rate, if you'd gone to that old RC Cola wall in the 90s, not only would there still have been graffiti on the wall probably, but all over the signs on I-95, there was a growing perception that graffiti was not only a big problem, but was potentially making the highways more dangerous by covering the signs. Community meetings and town halls were convened. There was a special graffiti hotline. The Florida Department of Transportation even set aside over $130,000 just for cleaning signs. And today, Julia has the story of how two guys in that wall became the symbol of that graffiti problem. But before we launch into that, Julia's going to help you keep those two guys straight. Yeah, so uh, guy number one, his name is Mike. He's a successful graphic designer. And in the 1990s, he was better known as Crook. You got to understand that, that graffiti is like a sport. Guy number two, his name is Anwar. Uh, he was better known as Chrome. You know, it's, it's all about fame, just getting your name out there and just get addicted. His tape isn't so great because he's in jail now. Julia will explain how all of that came to be, and it involves a fair amount of past criminal activity, so we've agreed not to use the last names of those guys. If it gets confusing, just remember that Crook is the one not in jail. It's counterintuitive. WLRN's Julia Duba brings us that story. Of Crook and Chrome, Chrome was the better artist. Even Crook admits this. Chrome's art was bold and colorful, almost psychedelic. In 1998, Chrome was already a pretty well-known graffiti artist. He had created the crew MSG for Miami-style graffiti. Well, William, Crook and Chrome are ready-made characters for you. And the story itself has so many just fantastic details. Like, I loved the idea that they would consider this giant mural of Crook Chrome the most dangerous thing on I-95s if there weren't plenty of hazards already. And the just hearing about Crook and Chrome was enough to hook me in. But then when we got to, like, the $1 million bail, when we got to Crook sassing the reporters as he was getting arrested, I just knew, like, I had to cover this. That there was It was the perfect Miami strain style of story that I think fascinates everyone across the country, but we in South Florida have a particular love and ownership of. So it must have been easy to turn it into a comedy. It was, I think so, especially so I got to talk to some of the principals, including our former state senator, Miguel Diaz de la Portilla, who was the county commissioner at the time. And he took aside a lot of time to talk to me about all the various steps they were taking sort of with all that money. When it talked about all the money that was set aside to fight graffiti, what did that mean? It meant... um, holding these sort of paint overs to paint over the graffiti, but also made for some interesting policy, like they would put the spray cans behind the counter of a place like Home Depot and make you have to show ID. And that actually cut off a lot of the access to the spray paint, which is on the one hand very interesting and also immediately funny from a comedic perspective of making spray paint like a gun license. And a few nights ago, you went to hear the rehearsal. Yes, we got to go up to Delray to hear the rehearsal at the table read, and it was fantastic. We're really so excited for Saturday. Well, to give you a glimpse into William's play, here's a teeny tiny teaser, a one-minute outtake of what William recorded at the rehearsal. I noticed you changed the names of the artists. Yes. So similarly for both anonymity and potential legal reasons, I changed them to an even more confusing curve curse. Curve and curse. So you'll be hearing from them. But I'm not Mr. Curse, I'm Mr. Curve. Excuse me. Mr. Curve, not Mr. Curse. Son, if you want to change your name, that's the next courtroom over. No, not that. <laughs> I'm just saying I'm Curve, the guy next to me is Curse. Now, hold up a minute. There's two of us, Curve and Curse. I'm Curve. I'm Curse. He's Curse. He's Curve. It's really pretty simple. Like hell it is. Am I allowed to say hell? 
I should be able to say whatever I damn well please in my own courtroom. The FCC can shove it up their... The sound of a spray can conveniently cuts them off. The hell was that? Your Honor, the prosecution has received new information that her curse are, in fact, two different notorious vandals. Not one singular notorious vandal. This is a shocking development. And we ask, Your Honor, that we may try them both today. Both Mr. Curb and Mr. Curse. I'll allow it. But I'm splitting the bail, then. If Curve Curse got the reasonable $1 million bail for felony vandalism, then Curve and Curse will get 500000 each. Wow. That's going to be a really fun radio play, William. I'm, yeah, I'm glad to hear. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, thank you. And thank you, Kenny, for calling in from New York. It's my pleasure. Um, I just wanted to add that um, the radio plays are being directed and produced by uh, Radio Theater Network and John Watts. Just throwing that in there. No, I think it's great. Thank you for remembering. All great. right, so uh, we look forward to hearing William's play on Saturday night. Good morning. This is the Fresh Art International Show on Jolt Radio. I'm Kathy Bird. You were just listening to my conversation with playwrights Kenny Finkel and William Hector and audio tracks related to one of the new plays to premiere at the Wolfsonian on Miami Beach this weekend. Today, our show is about 21st century radio and how radio as a medium informs and inspires creativity for news, podcasts, musicians, playwrights. Uh, The sky's the limit. The radio is exploding with possibilities. In the studio with me today are WLRN news anchor and reporter Christine DeMattei. Welcome. Well, thank you, Kathy. It's great to be here. And independent playwright Vanessa Garcia. Hi, Kathy. Hi. Christine's 2015 radio interview with Cuban-American poet Richard Blanco informed Vanessa's play titled The Space Between Us, and that's why I invited both of these people to join us here today. And I want to introduce them a little more formally. Christine worked in acting and voiceover, and I was reading. It sounded oh, super oh, was fun. I, was, was I working? I don't know. I think yeah. I was pretending to be an actor all those years. Well, but you did this <laughs> voice, English language dubbing for foreign films, soap operas, and cartoons. Yep. I just think that sounds fun. It was. I want to do it that. It is. <laughs> And then she ventured into radio broadcasting and now does South Florida news and stories for radio and web. Yep. And Vanessa describes herself as an ABC, which I loved. I'd never heard. An American-born Cuban. That's right. In her bio. And she's a multidisciplinary artist who works as a novelist, playwright, and journalist. And her plays have been produced in the U.S. and abroad. She is also one of the four playwrights that Kenny Finkel is working with on the uh, Playwright Development Program. And this conversation with Vanessa and Christine, I want to start with the interview that Christine recorded with Cuban-American poet Richard Blanco. Who's your intended audience for this new poem? Who are you speaking to? With this poetry. You know, with poetry, of, of course, poetry is all about subtlety and what's in between the lines. And it was a very it was a very hard thing I had to consider because I didn't want it to be just writing about, you know, the Cubans in the diaspora really everywhere and the Cubans on the island. Because it really is about the reunifications of two nations trying to re-understand each other. So it's very subtle in the way of trying to hint at 
the experiences of, of people on both on the island and off the island, but also thinking about how the common humanity of us all, whether we're Cuban American or Cuban, or whether we're you know listening to this in New York City or in uh, Wichita, Kansas. The, but those were the two audiences, and I knew it was a very fine line. It was about two sets of people as nations coming together and giving it a try, so to speak. You have a blog that you've co-created with Cuban-American anthropologist and writer Ruth Behar. It's called Bridges to From Cuba, Lifting the Emotional Embargo. How would you define that emotional embargo? Huh. I think we're not recognizing each other as human beings as much as we could and talking on a very human level, all because there's the political divide. And so um, if we can form that bond, get some of those gripes out of the air. You know, my mother needs to talk. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm getting a little emotional myself. My mother needs to talk to her sisters and tell her what it felt like to leave that country and tell her how much it hurt her and tell her how much it hurt that, 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 you know, they didn't respond back then very positively to her leaving. And why is that? There's a lot of emotional bonds that need to be repaired. I grew up since a little child sort of picking up all those emotions, those sorrows, those longings, that nostalgia. And so we, we, we had like a front row seat to that drama. Richard, the reopening of an American embassy in Cuba, this hits the history books. What do you want your poem to say that all the speeches that are going to be made will not say? Um, I think the the gist of the poem, because again, since a little child, not only in my family, but in my communities in Miami where I grew up, there's just been so much pain. And there's been pain on the island too, which is, you know, people don't understand that, you know, just because we're here, you know, my mother's here, her sister's also suffering on the other side. So the main message is about healing and about healing, healing on a very personal and uh, an individual level, but also perhaps on a collective level. And I think that that is in the air. And we talk about reconciliation, which is a little bit of a different word. This is not necessarily reconciliation. This is about healing to me. It's about, it's about acknowledging the pain that we've had. It's about acknowledging that this has been our history. It's about acknowledging that history doesn't stop, that it continues, that history continues to evolve. And so the sense of healing, of hope, and of a shared future together that perhaps we can all build. Christine, that is a gorgeous conversation you had with Richard Blanco. Thanks for making me cry, Kathy. You see, you know, I, I can do now what I couldn't do when I was in that studio with Richard is have a good cry. You know, it, pose, it poses a challenge for a broadcaster, for an interviewer when somebody is faltering with emotion. And I felt for him so deeply. As a newscaster, you know, you use, with regard to the, um, I'm going to use this phrase, normalization of relations the thaw of relations between the United These are very, very newsy, uh, very, very formal ways to describe what's going on between the United States and Cuba. And we forget that there are human beings involved here. And it's brought home most forcibly 
and, and very emotionally when you have somebody like Richard talking to you about what their family is experiencing. So this is why I was able to have a cry now that I couldn't have then. <laughs> and I think, I think that's really important, that empathy that you're able to show in your work and the empathy that I know uh, that these radio uh, playwrights want to evoke in, in their dialogues and their plays. I know that WLRN has broadcast a few conversations with Richard Blanco. Oh, yeah. He's such an important character being the inaugural poet for Obama's second inauguration. And I remember reading how touched he was that Obama even knew who he existed. Yes, yeah. And then to continue to play a role as a healer with his poetry in the reopening American embassy in Cuba that sparked this conversation mm -hmm. you had right. with him. How does your creative impulse play in your work as as a news journalist, as someone who is looking for stories that you want to share as news, but stories that are real um, and have their aesthetic to them? Well, you know, I, I do always have to hold myself back because I'm at heart a show person, you know, I, I'm... I'm on stage. And you can't do that if you're going to be a newscaster. You can't do that and be taken seriously. But there's always that bit of creativity that is going to creep, hopefully creep, into even an interview. Just even a straight interview like the, like the kind that I had with Richard. You, you really can't help it because he's just such a magnificent poet. And I, I recall what uh, novelist Pat Conroy said about poets. Poets tell their own truth in their own way. So there you are, the newscaster. You're this news person and you are honor bound to tell truth and then you've got this poet who's telling their own truth in their own way and you know you just have to you have to give uh forget about your showmanship forget about being showy and uh and gaudy and let that 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 poesy take flight that's what you do and i'm curious that must have been what you yeah. experienced in listening to her story and the other stories about richard yep. what how did that source material motivate your play? I mean, I think that's exactly right. I think some, the thing about that interview is that right in the middle of it, there's this crack in Richard's voice that is kind of like this this aperture and this seed that opens up to all of this history. And it, it brings to the human level this idea that that this this word aperture or the thawing of or, you know, what, all the words that, that Christine is talking about is about an opening up, but it's also about the sewing up of wounds that have been open for a very long time. And so that idea that, you know, my mother, all of a sudden he brings in his mother, you know, what, how close can you can you get, right? Um, that my mother has to talk to her sister. When I heard that right away, I mean, I thought about my family, I thought about my friends' families, I thought about all of Miami, I thought about the, you know, the sea between Miami and, and Cuba, and um, I thought, okay, these are my two characters. I'm going to speak about them, and I'm going to talk about uh, a fictionalized version of them, because I think that sometimes, um, just as, you know, Christine's talking about the, the creative impulse in journalism is perhaps how you lay it out and how you show the story and, and let it speak for itself um, in in fiction, sometimes the fictionalizing can bring more truth to something because you can say things that you can't say in nonfiction. So, I, What would we expect? What will take place in this 15-minute play? 
Well, there's there's two. Fictional- If you can share that, yeah, I, mean- I can. Of course, um, there's two sisters, um, Flor and Gachi. Uh, one has grown up in uh, Cuba, and the other one on the other side of the diaspora in Miami. And now, because of of this aperture, they are in the same efficiency in Miami, Florida, and all of the complications that arise out of that, in um, which are you know, the same family, but. Two cultures within the same family coming together, um, and and speaking of bringing in the idea of radio into this, I thought, okay, well, they have to be in a kitchen um, for many reasons, but I, I wanted to hear the sound of dishes and you know perhaps something breaking and and have that that sort of washing play in. Um, also, rain comes in at a certain point, so there's all this sort of soundscape that plays into it. But the other thing that played into it was a conversation that I had with Richard. Um, Blanco on the phone. He was in Maine, and he was talking to me about his own experience. Um, so Richard was is an engineer, and he was talking about the the first time he he told his um, mother that he wanted to be a poet, um, and she was sort of hesitant a little bit. And um, he reminded her that you know the national hero of Cuba is a poet, um, Jose Marti, and all of a sudden she sort of understood what that meant. And I kind of wanted to bring that into the play too, so that's in there a little bit, but I won't give that part away because it's at the end. <laughs> well, I think it'd be lovely for us to hear the the poem itself from Richard Blanco, and clearly we're all fans. Oh yeah, yeah. Vanessa and Christine, thank you for sharing this story with us. I think it's going to be a, a gorgeous play to hear. Thank you. Thank you. And now for Richard reciting his poem "Matters of the Sea," "Cosas del Mar." In August 2015, he read this poem at the ceremony for the reopening of the American Embassy in Havana, Cuba. Matters of the sea, cosas del mar. The sea doesn't matter. What matters is this: we all belong to the sea between us, all of us, once. And still, the same child who marvels over starfish, listens to hollow shells, sculpts dreams into impossible castles. We've all been lovers, holding hands, strolling down either of our shores, our footprints, like a mirage of selves, vanished in waves that don't know their birth or care. On which country they break, they break. They bless us and return to the sea, home to all our silent wishes. No one is the other to the other to the sea. Whether on hemmed island or vast continent, remember our grandfathers. Their hands dug deep into red. Or brown earth, planting maple or mango trees that outlive them. Our grandmothers, counting years while dusting photos of their wedding days, those brittle family faces still alive on our dressers now. Our mothers, teaching us how to read in Spanish or English, how to tie our shoes. How to gather false colors or bite into a guava? Our fathers, worn by the weight of clouds, clocking in at factories or 
cutting sugarcane to earn a new life for us. My cousins and I, now scouting the same stars above skyscrapers or palms, waiting for time to stop and begin again when rain falls, washes its way through river or street back to the sea. No matter what anthem we sing, we've all walked barefoot and bare-souled among the soar and dive of seagulls' cries. We've offered our sorrows and hopes up to the sea, our lips anointed by the same spray of salt-laden wind. We've fingered memories and regrets like stones in our hands that we just can't toss. Yet, yet, we've all cupped seashells up to our ears. Listen again to the echo. Today, the sea still telling us the end to all our doubts and fears is to gaze into the lucid blues of our shared horizon, to breathe together, to heal together. The voice you just heard was Cuban-American poet Richard Blanco reading his poem, Matters of the Sea, Cosas del Mar. To commemorate the reopening of the American embassy in Cuba, Richard's personal and creative life have sparked a new radio play that will debut this weekend during Radio Fest at the Wolfsonian on Miami Beach. Thank you to Heather Cook, Kenny Finkel, William Hector, Christine Demette, and Vanessa Garcia for joining me on the show today. Before we go, though, I want Heather from the Wolfsonian, Heather Cook, to remind our listeners where they can find out more about Radio Fest. Yes, absolutely. Thanks again, Kathy. You can visit wolfsonian.org. It's listed under our upcoming programs. You can get tickets there, find out more information, and hopefully we'll see you starting at 10 a.m. on Saturday for Radio Fest. This is Fresh Art International on Jolt Radio, streaming live from Miami, Florida. I'm Kathy Bird. Our show today has been about the growing energy and creativity around radio. If you like what you're hearing, please send us a thumbs up at Fresh Art INTL and Jolt Radio. Add Fresh Art International to your playlist on SoundCloud to listen to my radio show and podcast. Thank you for listening. Meet us every Wednesday morning for Contemporary Art Talk.